good evening and welcome. I'm Chris DeMuth. I'm a fellow here at the Hudson Institute uh, uh, and uh, delighted to welcome, welcome you to this uh, discussion of the new novel by Roger Scruton, Notes from Underground, uh, published this spring by Beaufort Books. Uh, we have, uh, thanks to our friends at Politics and Prose, uh, copies of the book available for sale uh, after the discussion. And uh, our author will uh, take his uh, seat at the rear of the room and uh, uh, sign any copies uh, that uh, are purchased or any copies that people uh, brought along uh, hoping to have him uh, sign. Uh, Hudson is delighted to be co-sponsoring this uh, forum with the Common Sense Society, which is an independent educational foundation. It works to promote civic engagement, entrepreneurship, and the, and the virtues of leadership among young people in the United States and in Europe. Uh, the president of uh, the Common Sense Society, Marion Smith, is here. I, help him, I thank him for his help and also the help of Travis uh, LeCouture, hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, and his colleagues at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Roger Scruton is a visiting uh, professor of philosophy at Oxford a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center uh, here in uh, Washington. Uh, he has had uh, distinguished affiliations uh, with almost uh, every important uh, academic and think, uh, think tank uh, institution in England and uh, the, uh, the UK, I should say, and the USA at one point or another uh, in his career. Uh, he long ago uh, transcended uh, institutional affiliations of uh, any sort. Uh, he is uh, considered part of the family when we can get him uh, at any uh, uh, academic intellectual institution on either side of the uh, Atlantic. He's the author of more than 40 books. Uh, I mentioned a few in the notice, Beauty, The Uses of Pessimism, others uh, favorites of mine are The Aesthetics of Architecture, The Aesthetics of Music, uh, a book on environmentalism. His most uh, recent uh, book, along with the one we're discussing uh, tonight, uh, is The Soul of the World, uh, which Princeton is bringing out uh, just this month. It is a demonstration of the continuing reality of the sacred, uh, even in the face of all of the firm certainties of modern uh, science. It's a wonderful book. Uh, that uh, Roger would be publishing two books uh, in uh, one month uh, is uh, the uh, latest reminder of the immense uh, prolificacy of this, uh, of this man. I, I, I don't know anybody who has written as many books as Roger has who has not written too many. <laughs> uh, it somehow uh, seems possible uh, for, uh, for Roger with his amazing output uh, to choose every single word, thought, sentence uh, with great care. Every one of his works uh, reflects an immense amount of learning, uh, careful thought, uh, balanced, careful attention, uh, sometimes more care to the attention of his opponents uh, than they have paid uh, themselves, uh, and astoundingly uh, uh, rigorous uh, argumentation on behalf of the ideas that he is uh, advancing. Uh, this book that he is discussing this evening is a novel. Uh, Notes from Underground is a tale of living 
in a totalitarian, under a totalitarian state, uh, just when that state is itself collapsing and presenting uh, unexpected new challenges to our protagonists. It is not a conventional story of heroic uh, resistance uh, to oppression. It is much more interior, layered, I dare say more realistic portrait of the depredations of uh, communism. Uh, I could say more, and I will not. Uh, I want to mention uh, uh, as, uh, as a reason for not saying more that although I would know how to introduce uh, books by Roger on environmentalism or philosophy or conservatism uh, or aesthetics, uh, one should not say too much before the author speaks. A work of fiction is not something we are accustomed to uh, here at the Hudson uh, Institute. A serious work of fiction, and this is emphatically a serious work of fiction, uh, differs from a serious work of nonfiction uh, in that it emphasizes moral ambiguity and nuance such as we all experience in, the, in our own lives as we lead them. It is therefore open to various uh, interpretations. Uh, it is open to being shaped by the subjective understanding of the reader uh, and therefore, uh, uh, it is not uh, a matter for anybody to uh, pronounce on with uh, finality, and we want to hear most of all from Roger himself. But at the same time, I want to warn Roger that for a work of fiction, precisely because it is open to interpretation, because it acquires a life of its own once it is out in the world, uh, it is no longer the exclusive possession of, his, of an author. Uh, as a work of philosophy or nonfiction or politics uh, might be. Therefore, the author's intentions are interesting and useful, uh, but they are not the last word on the subject, uh, for there are other words to be spoken by people who have read his work, gotten to know the uh, people that he has created and the uh, dilemmas that he has cast them, uh, uh, cast in front of them, uh, and we will be hearing from individuals in the room, uh, but uh, first of all, from two individuals uh, who themselves has, each in his own way, been an important part of the world that provides the setting for Roger's drama. Uh, first and most important, uh, Peter uh, Gandalovic, the Czech ambassador to the United States. Uh, the ambassador uh, was uh, uh, during the mid-1980s, the time in Prague uh, that is the setting of Notes from Underground, uh, a student uh, uh, at uh, Charles University in uh, Prague uh, studying math and physics, uh, which he was then uh, teaching uh, at a uh, high school at the time of the communist collapse. Uh, he uh, attended some demonstrations and ended up uh, uh, being drawn into politics. He was one of the founders of the Civic Forum, uh, the first substantial classical liberal uh, political uh, grouping in 1989 in Prague, and later was uh, a, one of the co-founders of the uh, offshoot, the Civic Democratic uh, Party, uh, which he served as vice chairman and in other positions. Uh, after the ambassador, we will hear from John O'Sullivan, who is director of the Danube Institute in uh, Budapest which is a center of intellectual debate for classical liberals and their democratic opponents in Central Europe. 
Uh, he is also director of the 21st Century Initiatives in Washington and a senior fellow at the National Review Institute here in Washington. Uh, and uh, among his uh, other uh, previous positions, he was uh, for a time vice president and executive editor of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Prague. Uh, with those introductions, we will proceed uh, first uh, to uh, our author, uh, then for, uh, to our two commenters. We may have a little discussion here, uh, and then we will open it up to uh, comments, questions, and a general discussion with everyone who has come. Roger, thank you very much. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Chris. That was, as always, a very lucid uh, and uh, rounded introduction, with a, a bit too flattering to me, but I, I, uh, probably creating, at least setting the tone for what I have to try and live up to. Uh, the, re the reason, obviously, for uh, publishing this book now is that we've, uh, we're approaching the 25th anniversary uh, of the fall of the Berlin Wall and um, the Velvet Revolution as it's so-called, in, in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. And um, it, as we approached it, this was a year or more ago, I, I began to think that I really must finally write down my own feelings about it. I've tried many times, it had never worked. Uh, but uh, once I'd thought of the title, Mo Notes from Underground, it wrote itself over a period of um, many months. Uh, and of course, uh, it's a bit... Uh, of a cheek for me to say that I thought of that title because <laughs> it was taken from Dostoevsky, as everybody knows. Um, but um, there's a reason why I chose it, nevertheless, uh, other than the fact that it's a, such a good one, uh, which is that the hero of this book is himself, um, who's lost in a kind of underground world of his own. He, he picks up uh, Dostoevsky's notes from underground, and it's the, that very thought that you can actually be underground away from where everything is going on and yet find some kind of life, cantankerous life indeed, of your own there, uh, which sets him on his path, um, I won't say to ruin, but to complexity at least. Uh, and um, the, the book is about the underground in many ways. Uh, for a start, it's a, about uh, the subway in Prague. Uh, Jan spends a lot of time uh, uh, traveling around on the subway because he, he can, as it were, nurse his loneliness there and feel at home with it and live in a world of fantasy, looking at the other passengers and inventing their lives for, for them. Uh, and one of the remarkable things about the, uh, the communist countries at, the, at that time, especially Czechoslovakia, was the silence. People didn't speak to each other, not unless there was absolute necessity, uh, and um, kept uh, all conversations even when they were necessary, to a whisper. So sitting there in these silent carriages where the, only the rattle of the wheels can be heard uh, stimulated this guy's fantasy into inventing for himself a better world. Finally, someone seems to reach down from that better world to lift him up, only, and he climbs up thanks to her, only to discover that he's in another kind of underground, uh, the underground culture uh, and... Um, the, Sami, the world of Samizdat uh, and uh, unofficial lectures and so on, which is a world that I knew because I was part of it. So, um, and the relation between these two raises the, the great question, how do you actually emerge 
from that uh, catacomb in which he was carrying out his life. Um, he seemed to have uh, arisen into another layer, another level of catacombs, but still the light, uh, the light um, eluded him. So that is the question under, uh, underlies the book. And I think it's um, what I was trying to do was to, to convey to people how things were at that time. Uh, that is to say, how they were phenomenologically, what it was like to be in that world, not, not a sort of political analysis or a, an attempt to describe the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, routines of day-to-day -day life, although those are important, but simply the, 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 the smell of things, the touch of things, the, wor the way in which somehow uh, the, the pervading suspicion and distrust was not just something that you saw in the eyes of other people, but you, you could, as it were, see it dripping on the walls. The whole atmosphere of life was, in an important way, different from the from the life that you Americans lived here. And and the the story is told from the point of view of America. The the, the hero of the book finally emerges, as everybody does in 1989, into the new freedoms. He he ends up teaching in a liberal arts college here in Washington. And looking back at this, at that peculiar world, trying to recreate, repossess its peculiar atmosphere from the day-to-day, uh, -day, um, ordinary atmosphere of a place like Washington, in which there are no real troubles, but everybody is hurrying, hurrying away from one trouble towards the next in a rather exhilarated way. So, uh, in, in that old atmosphere, uh, there was where things were, uh, moved extremely slowly but human relationships were all important. There was a, a longing for truth, not just the truth of facts, getting the facts right, knowing history, well, that was important for people, but the truth of the soul, knowing that you were dealing with the truth of another person, which you could never be sure about, because it was always, you were always on the edge of things, just as the, our relations with God uh, are like that, and we get we to the edge of our world, and there, beyond it, we see something unfathomable. In that atmosphere, it was like that between people, too. You got to the edge of normality, and you didn't know whether you were consulting the truth or just a great vacuum, or perhaps a betrayal. Uh, and um, you, you saw the other person, as it were, in a vision, which illuminated everything for a moment and then vanished. And there was a sense of the helplessness in the face of this and of the stupidity of everything around you. He, the, the, this guy, Jan, emerges, anyway, thanks to Betka, the, the woman, strange woman, who um, liberates him. And he emerges into the underground seminars. And I think I just should say just a little bit about that, because that was how I got to know this world, um, by visiting people who were conducting these seminars underground in order to, uh, um, first of all, to teach the young people who had been deprived of any right to go to the university because of the political profile of their parents, whatever, you know, some something that had gone wrong, which was, of course, a, a very noble and honorable thing. But, but secondly, also to keep alive the memory of the uh, Czech civilization, Czech culture, which was one of the great uh, fragments of European culture which had achieved so much in the, in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, and which was not properly conveyed, of course, in the official institutions. So there, there had grown a kind of underground culture in which, of which these seminars were a part. There was also a, an underground popular culture, 
uh, much influenced by what young people had been able to hear and, uh, and entertain of, of Western popular music. You know, the Beatles, of course, have been a huge influence, John Lennon in particular, for his um, gestures of defiance towards authority. Uh, and um, many young people imagined that something like that could be done in the Czech lands. In particular, a, a, a famous pop group called the Plastic People of the Universe, who were um, promptly arrested uh, and um, whose case became a cause célèbre. Um, Havel, Václav Havel, who was then a kind of official dissident, taking it up uh, uh, and himself being in prison for four or five years as a result. In that society, uh, there was a great di division between the official and the unofficial dissidents, so to speak. There were, there were dissidents, and this, which was very true of Poland and Hungary too, there were dissidents who were known in the West, who had spoken out, whose works were translated because they were, in any case, people of international standing, intellectually and artistically. People like Václav Havel, Havel Kohout, uh, and so on. Uh, and around them there were others, including the famous poet, well, famous to Czechs, uh, called Euros um, uh, or Magor. He wrote, wrote under the pseudonym of Magor. And another such poet, Karol Krill, who were, uh, whose profile was strong enough that they could speak out and, uh, and who also risked going to jail, but whose destiny was always heard about in the West. But then there were the unofficial dissidents people who, um, who ha had not achieved that profile, but nevertheless had, be had lost everything for one reason or another, and in particular, uh, those who were expelled from universities following the Soviet invasion in, in, in 1968. They had lost their jobs uh, and um, lost with it all sense of, a, of being able to establish an intellectual identity for their, of their own, but still wanted to be intellectuals and to, and to have... That, that sort of the glory, the halo of being a, a suffering soul uh, casting its light across the ordinary world around. Uh, and the Samizdat press grew up as much to cater for the vanity of those unofficial uh, dissidents as to publish the real achievements of the official ones, or the ones that we all know about, the ones who had done well for themselves in, a, in, in whatever previous incarnation. So there were a lot of jealousies lot of competition, uh, as well as this pervading suspicion. Uh, and people kept their little circles and so on. So I described that world uh, and tried to invoke the, um, both the, to some extent, the world of the uh, popular uh, underground culture and the world of the serious under underground culture riven by jealousies, but also by, by the search, the, uh, uh, overriding search for love and understanding, which was always uh, there and almost always frustrated uh, um, because you couldn't trust the other. Uh, and there's another aspect of this, which I think Czechs today, um, Pavel will, uh, sorry, P Peter will perhaps correct me, but Czechs today don't see how important it was, and that was the religious dimension. Uh, 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 all the opposition in Eastern Europe had um, taken a, a new turn with the election of John Paul, Pope John Paul II. Uh, in other words, a Polish pope thoroughly familiar with the, the devastation of the soul that, that, that communism had set out to achieve, who uh, renewed the message of Christianity, and the message that actually there is no 
uh, there is no way out of this maze except through embracing the, the path of sacrifice which uh, Christ had set before us. And many people in, the, in Czechoslovakia uh, also heard that message. So uh, one of my characters is an underground priest who had broken away from the official collaborating church uh, and written about this and, and had his own underground con uh, congregation. So through him, I try and evoke that very strange world of a highly metaphysical Christianity. Um, Father Pavel, who, who in the character, is much influenced by, by Simon Weil, the, fr the French existentialist theologian, uh, uh, and that, that sense of living on the edge of things which she advocated as the only path to salvation. That there's something very, um, I don't know, e e extreme, almost exaggerated in his uh, advocacy uh, of, sac of sacrifice. Uh, and, and there were people like that, uh, in particular, one of the philosopher, Václav Bender, who, who uh, ran a, an underground seminar of his own and was part of all that. So all that is the, I try to convey that atmosphere, and one must remember that uh, the Czechs are remarkable for their theatrical tradition. I think it's the most theatrical nation that's ever existed really. Uh, I mean, the theatre was the, the thing that made uh, modern Czechoslovakia in the 19th century, well, the modern Czech identity in the 19th century, uh, and it was men of theatre who, who uh, put the place on the map, people, people like Chap the two Chapics, uh, and um, of course Havel and, uh, and so on. Uh, right, so, so th there's a, an element of theatricality in all this as well. Uh, my take on this, I'll just try and summarize it, how I saw that situation, because I think it is really important to us today to, to remember it. We're, we're entering, as we know, a, a new period of conflict in Europe where the, the, uh, the, the um, sense of uh, that order is imposed from above by a superior power that is unanswerable to people, namely um, the, the, uh, Putin and his henchmen, it is once again making itself felt in Eastern Europe, and people are trembling with the rem with the memory of what they went through then and what they had then. All they what they had then was their private relations, not n no attempt, n nothing that would re-establish public order. So, uh, so it's important to look back on it. My take is um, very much that uh, that in looking at the Czechs and the Czech nation as it was then, we're looking at a nation that's in a certain sense made by books. Books were tremendously important. This is one reason why uh, we visitors from the West who went to the underground seminars, uh, there weren't very many of us, but why it was so exciting was that having um, spent however many years in the futile effort of trying to get our students in, uh, in uh, Britain or France to read books, we suddenly encountered people who actually wanted to read them, uh, and, they, and they wanted to read them because they were forbidden. You know, we'd obviously used the wrong method. Uh, and, and, and here they were, these uh, people assembled in a state of, uh, of, often of fear, knowing that, you know, that at any moment the door might be, uh, be bro broken open and they'd be taken away for their 48 hours of, uh, of, um, of interrogation. Uh, assembled, nevertheless, with extremely difficult books, prepared to listen to, ha to, you, to how you would help them to understand them and what those books told them by way of uh, the truth of the human condition and what one must do, if you like, to be saved. 
Uh, and this is, if you look back at the Hitchhack history, you'll see that books have had this importance from the very beginning. It's no accident that the first president uh, of, the, um, uh, of Czechoslovakia after the First World War was a literary man and a philosopher. Uh, and and um, you know, uh, uh, literary people have had a prominent place ever since. Uh, the communists, of course, um, dumbed everything down and, and their politicians were a particularly dumb collection. But nevertheless, by the, uh, when, when um, Czechoslovakia <coughs> rediscovered itself in 1989, who was the first president? Another literary man uh, who was there because of the books he'd written. Uh, and my hero, is, is uh, his whole uh, um, story is one of a young person lost in books, uh, in particular one book which sent him in the direction that he, he went, uh, namely Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. And, and so I try to describe what it is like uh, uh, in that particular situation to be led by books into, the, into one's relationships when perhaps uh, being led by something else might have been a little bit more, a bit, little bit more of a success. But nevertheless, the idea prevailed then that somehow the written word contained the um, path to salvation. And, and, and that explained the spiritual hunger with which young people approached each other. And, what, and Jan, looking back from his job as a second-rate uh, uh, professor in a second-rate liberal arts college in, in the, this first-rate city, um, remembers this and, and, and thinks of it with longing, thinks of longing of what it was then to approach the other with this spiritual hunger as though you were to be redeemed by her. Uh, and he remembers a true moment of giving when he gave himself and she gave herself, uh, uh, which was the real freedom that, he'd been that both of them had been wanting, which they thought then was in, within their grasp, but, but it quick, uh, immediately eluded them. And it was never to be, it's never to be <coughs> recuperated now that he's enjoying the, um, the easygoing freedoms of the Western world, which are the, the kind of necessary but insufficient freedoms offered by a consumer society. Uh, and uh, he, uh, um, he is not persuaded by the uh, propaganda of the American uh, um, uh, Radio Free Europe and so on, that it's all about human rights. He knows there's something else, something deeper. It's really about longing, Zehnsucht or Toha, as the Czechs call it, uh, which is woven into the scheme of things uh, and uh, n never to be satisfied merely by human rights and the elementary freedoms, however wonderful they, those are. So I think, just to conclude, uh, that it's worth revisiting those times, especially if you can do so uh, uh, at the low cost of, how much is the book, $25, something <laughs> like that, um, uh, and I'll sign it. Um, but I think it's useful to, to, to look back over what we have lost as well as what we've gained. Of course, we've gained uh, enormously. Uh, and I, I, I worked for the liberation of, the, uh, of, of those parts of the world. And I, I can't possibly regard my whole life as a complete failure just because it was achieved. But on the other hand, I'd, I do remember that, that longing and that sense of the I infinite value of the other and the unobtainability of the other, which saw people through those difficult times and also is something that we should remember. Those were times when people recognized what was real to them, their nation, their, their religious tradition, their cultural values and loyalties. Uh, and of course, those things are easy to forget in, in a world of, um, of, mass, uh, of 
uh, widely available luxuries and comforts. Uh, and I think we should also recognize the fragility of the new, new societies that have grown uh, uh, with the westernization uh, and the opening of borders and so on. For selfishness and frivolity have a head start in a ma market economy over loyalty and sacrifice, as we know, and it produces a new society which is not so e eager to defend itself and whose elites are not so committed to uh, the, pe the, the people who look up to them as they perhaps ought to be. And I think this is one of the lessons we should take from the Ukraine, uh, uh, that the elite and the ordinary people are no longer properly attached that, they d that there isn't a, a, a shared loyalty or, or a way in which that elite can clearly represent the people who look to it for its rescue. Moreover, uh, thanks to the European Union, the elites of all those countries are rapidly leaving them. There's no reason why you should stay in Prague when you could live in London. Uh, and indeed, um, uh, uh, Putin... Uh. Okay, there is. Uh, uh, <laughs> but... Um, but let's, uh, you know, let's take, uh, not Prague necessarily, but, uh, you know, but, um, you know, any, any little uh, industrial town, uh, Ostrava, for instance, uh, you know. Anyway, the elites are not as attached as they were. Uh, and interesting enough, the Russian elites are not a as attached as they were. They all live in London or Geneva. Uh, who would live in Russia, or, uh, uh, you know, if they could choose? And this is a great problem in the Ukrainian situation. The people who should be leading that country in its uh, hour of need are not there. So there are problems uh, in, that have grown recently. And I think looking back at that time when people, for all sorts of good reasons and all sorts of bad reasons, felt deeply attached to each other, we, we have a glimpse of what they, those countries might be if they were to actually fight for themselves yet again. Roger, thank you indeed. Um, Ambassador uh, Gandalovic, please. Well, mm, thank you. Thank you for the Hudson, uh, the Hudson Institute for doing this. Um, thank you, Roger, for uh, writing this book. I cannot even overstate how humbled I am to, sitting, uh, to be sitting uh, between these two man I really respect so much who am I to uh, uh, talk about your work but uh, uh, yet I am the ambassador of the country you're writing about so that thanks uh, makes me at least somehow uh, credited maybe perhaps um, again first uh, uh, you writing a book about our past and uh, um, uh, dealing with uh, basically one sector of the society, which is the dissident uh, uh, sector, the, the group of uh, people who have actually crossed that line, mm -hmm. is mm, extremely important. And I do hope that the book will be soon uh, translated to Czech because uh, it will give us some sort of um, uh, mirror view. As a matter of fact, not too many books uh, have been written about the past. Uh, we still, we still mm, somehow grapple with uh, our own past. And um, if there are books uh, or movies uh, shot on uh, those years, uh, many of them resort to humor, sarcasm, irony. Some of them even uh, border with uh, some sort of nostalgia. 
and uh, uh, there are very, very few books uh, that would actually be fiction on the uh, mm, um, mm, on uh, the background of uh, uh, such a terrible uh, situation as uh, living as a dissident in a totalitarian country. Uh, you can understand that they were um, basically three groups of people. The members of the <coughs> Communist Party, the privileged uh, group, and they were about 10% uh, of the entire population. Uh, in the nation of uh, uh, 15 million, as we speak of uh, Czechoslovakia in those years, there were one and a half million members, members of the Communist Party. Then, of course, there was a handful of dissidents in this comparison. There were, I think, uh, uh, less than 300 signatories to Charter 77, and then there were other dissidents associated with them. And these were people who really had crossed that line between living in some sort of uh, decent conditions. Uh, yeah, and I, of course, I didn't say that in between there was this gray zone of uh, majority of the nation. And that was this majority of nation that was actually hostage of uh, that uh, one and a half million of the privileged members of the Communist Party. And those only people who were not hostage <laughs> were those dissidents because they actually had crossed that line so that they didn't need to uh, bow. They, all they faced was more and more um, uh, oppression and um, punishment, maybe perhaps jail time, but uh, nothing could have been taken away from them. And that was something that we could possibly, in that bitter sense of the word, envy to them, because all other of us were hostage. And each day we had a difficult time uh, facing ourselves in the mirror, because uh, every single day we were doing compromises we didn't like. We used to do compromises uh, or make compromises uh, because of our children who we wanted to be admitted to higher education, uh, because of our own careers we wanted to pursue, because of everything, you know. Some of, the, some of the people wanted to get an apartment from the state, so they needed to make a compromise. And they needed, didn't need to become the members of the Communist Party. They, had, uh, they needed to just, you know, shut up and not to protest while uh, the dissidents um, were those who were the sort of conscience of the nation. We knew about them because obviously we would be listening to uh, free radio. And um, again, um, life must have been terrible because uh, particularly for, uh, for um, young people who were by all means uh, totally cut from any official education. It wasn't easy uh, to educate a young uh, man and, or woman in such an environment because uh, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that such a person is able to gather education at underground seminars. Only few were able to pick up their education. Many of them just ended up uneducated which is 
obviously a handicap they've been carrying uh, for the rest of their lives. So uh, again, uh, thank you for describing life in such conditions. Thank you for uh, mm, being able to actually uh, mm, identify different uh, areas of, uh, uh, of the descent. There were at least three, as I might uh, simplify that situation. Uh, you talked about the religious descent. Uh, there were obviously also people who uh, were uh, ousted of the Communist Party because of uh, their uh, partic uh, of them participating in the uh, attempt to, uh, mm, you know, to reform the Communist Party. So that was a historic paradox that those very persons who participated in the communist uh, activities in the 50s then uh, tried to reform the Communist Party and lost in 68. And then, of course, they became the dissidents uh, alongside uh, with uh, liberal dissidents like uh, Václav Havel, who never actually was the member of the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. So that was a third group of, uh, of the, mm, the mm, dissent group, those uh, who were dissidents because of their um, non-religious liberal uh, conviction. And then maybe the fourth group, which were underground uh, um, artists, mm. Mm, rock uh, musicians, uh, um, uh, theater um, actors or directors. Maybe perhaps I wish to correct you that uh, uh, Beatles uh, wasn't the... Mm, uh, Beatles might have been uh, widely popular among the, uh, among the mm, what would we say, gray zone. Everybody loved Beatles, and we were able to listen to Beatles then. But um, mm, uh, the uh, dissent, uh, dissident rock groups were actually um, inspired by the Velvet Underground. Mm -hmm. So the plastic people of the universe uh, sort of uh, drew their inspiration from that uh, that's, uh, source, uh, and that uh, created this bond between Václav Havel eventually and Lou Reed. Mm -hmm. So with that cultural <laughs> uh, explanation, uh, thank you. Thank you again for including me. It's such an honor. Thank you again. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. <laughs> John O'Sullivan. Um, thank you very much, uh, Chris, and, uh, and um, it's a very great pleasure to be here. But let me say, first of all, that uh, uh, this is a terrific book, so you should buy it. And uh, secondly, um, I, I'm, I'm going to try and avoid uh, telling you everything that happens because um, one should not really know the plot uh, of a novel when one starts to read it. But, but unavoidably, I may, uh, I may reveal one or two things, although I think my interpretation of what Roger has written may differ from what Roger <laughs> himself thinks was, ha was happening. But the first thing I want to talk about is, is the city he's describing. I mean, it, I mean this was fast. Having lived in Prague for four years, of course, at a later stage, I found this um, very fascinating indeed, because Prague in this novel is a kind of a purgatory. Um, he mentions that his character is riding uh, on the underground all the time, developing fantasies about the people in the carriage with him, but never speaking to them. And indeed, I mean, the whole 
project, and one of the elements of the communist project was to prevent speak people speaking to one another pleasantly, casually, socially, and so far as they could. It was to divide people so that they wouldn't realize what they shared in common. The, the, the regime propaganda was they, they were sharing everything in common, but um, the regime didn't want them to feel that they were sharing things in common because then they might become a threat to the regime. Now, I first went to Prague earlier than the novel is set in 1971, and the Prague in those days, was this was three years after 68, and, pra and Prague was, I think, in a worse state then than this, than at the stage that this novel is about. Um, because in addition to the, the recent memory of what Stalin, high Stalinism had been like, which is, I think, well described in, uh, in um, Anne Applebaum's recent book, um, the, 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 the suppression of the Prague Spring had created a feeling, I think, of self-hatred and self-contempt among many Czechs. They felt uh, they should have fought. They hadn't fought in 38, and they didn't fight now. Well, I, uh, on this trip, by the way, I came, I was, on a, I was taking American students around Europe, and I came from Budapest to Prague and then went from there to East Berlin. Um, Budapest was relatively free and cheerful. It was known as the jolliest barracks in the socialist camp. <laughs> uh, and I had a very pleasant time there. And um, although I was a strong anti-communist, I you know, felt that there was some element of human freedom there. When you, then you got off the train in Prague. I couldn't get a sandwich at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, there was a deadening quality about the whole society. Um, I had the experiences that very often people had in those days, which were odd in their way. For example, paying for a meal in dollars and then getting more money back in, the, uh, in change uh, at, at the official exchange rate because, of course, I'd given them an awful lot of money in, in, uh, in the, at the unofficial rate. And, um, but when one could speak to people, and people were very reluctant to speak to you, you did feel this sense of, uh, as I say, self contempt and the regime had demonstrated only too recently both in 68 and previously that real force stood behind um, the normalization project um, Baclav Havel um, and other people have spoken about submission to the lie as being the, the the principal element of totalitarianism in those years and there's no doubt that that was important um, but it was achieved uh, as a result of previous brutality. I think the Hungarian, Canadian Jewish writer George Jonas tells a story that um, a professor disappeared uh, in what, on one occasion. He was unpopular with the regime, but he just disappeared. Later, a student in his class was, um, was um, uh, charged with his murder. This is, I think, in Hungary, um, charged with his murder, um, he was convicted and executed. Later on in the year, the professor turned up again. Hmm. Um, nobody said anything. The message was, we can do anything we like to you. Now, now um, th that stage had passed, but the memory of it was there. And the result, and, and the everyday oppression uh, of a pedestrian, deadening, denial of the normal activities life was very real. Uh, there's a lot of it in, in, in Roger's book. But I'm going to take an example from elsewhere. Roger himself played, a, I think, a heroic role in the years of normalization. He, uh, he's understated it here, but he went to, to, um, 
to um, Czechoslovakia. He held, he gave private uh, you know, philosophy lectures. He helped organize the books going there and so on. And um, and he took risks of, as, uh, of being beaten up, arrested, uh, interrogated, and so on. Um, if you look, if you want to know what that kind of thing was like, it's worth, uh, and how life was made oppressive at an everyday level for people. <coughs> think of the fact that, um, think of, for example, a scene from Stoppard's play, uh, on a, um, a professional file, um, an English philosophy lecturer uh, go accepts a, an official Czech invitation to uh, give a lecture, a philosophy lecture in Prague, almost entirely because there's um, an England versus Czechoslovakia football match on, and he's got tickets for it so he can get a free trip. When he's in his hotel, the doorbell rings, he opens the door, and one of his former students, a chap who gets a first, who got a first, is there. And he's very pleased to see him, and he says, how nice to see you. I remember you, of course, you did very well, I think, at first. Um, um, what are you doing now? And the man says, oh, well, I'm a cleaner. And the philosopher says, <coughs> a cleaner, a cleaner. You know, I'm afraid I just don't keep up with the philosophy journals these days. I don't, I don't know that, that school. And he says, no, no, I'm a cleaner. I mean, I clean lavatories. That's what I do for a living. And, and Roger and I know, and I'm sure Peter knew people, who, I mean, I knew Pavel Bratinka, and he was later a minister, um, but he was a he was um, a stoker. Got a, he was given a job as a stoker and spent his time um, uh, um, keeping buildings warm. Now um, that was the kind of thing that happened to people who rebelled. And then there were the careerists. And I think someone later calculated that for every member of the Communist Party who was uh, who was a genuine communist or supporter of the regime, there were seven careerists. Uh, they did all right later. Um, and they've done very well, but the but the, <coughs> the the feeling about life then, which is the what this book is has is is um, is very powerful in conveying the way in which people had to retreat either into their own personalities in order to um, to survive or into small um, uh, dissident groups. Now um, there are two main characters in the book. There are others, um, and they are of course Betka, who is the woman who, as uh, Roger said, in a sense, tempts um, Jan out of the um, self-obsessed life he's reading, he's leading, um, and who becomes, uh, uh, with whom he falls in love. I think she is an absolutely marvelous character. Uh, I, I, this happens to me, I'm afraid, I fell in love a bit with her. She's the classic girl of M whom, who, with whom you have hoped to, to have it spend a life. But somehow she's got away. She's elusive, a will-o'-the-wisp, <coughs> beautiful, intelligent, charming, and and yet at the same time, how interested is she in you? And 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 and, and is she not also interested in him and him? And and what are their relationships and and so on? So that's the kind of suspiciousness in which he starts. I th I'm less entranced. With Jan, that's probably as it should be, um, but at the same time, my feeling about him is that he is very reasonably alienated from the society in which he lives. But he would be alienated, I think, perhaps in any society, because, as Roger points out, he is being very—he's shaped, among other things, 
by the kind of Dostoevskyan and Sartrean literature of alienation. Now, he may differ, this may be an interpretation he doesn't have of his own character, but I felt that, in a way, there was no, this man would never be happy. Uh, and uh, he is therefore, um, he's moving from purgatory, but he's almost certainly going to end up in purgatory as well. And, and, um, and then, of course, the relationship is one that is, there is this moment in which, they, in which the two lovers um, become, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, aware of each other's uniqueness, but their own absolute compatibility, which passes. But where does this happen? It happened, why? It happens in the Sudetenland, in the area of, um, of, uh, in an area of Czechoslovakia from which the earlier inhabitants have been expelled at the end of the war and who, which are now occupied, in the case of Betka and her family, by, by, I think by, they're not, I think she's basically descended from, a, I mean, I've, I've forgotten Arabian. that, from a Russian Mm. She's Russian, right? She's no, a, she's no. descended from a collaborator. <laughs> collaborator. Mm. Uh, now, um, is this home in which you know, she she has a reverence for the household and the household gods and the faith and the past, and she wants to be part of it, and she has made herself part of it in a way, though we discover that's more complicated later. Um, she's a kind of a cuckoo in the nest, but nonetheless a patriotic cuckoo in the nest. She wanted to be. She's 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 got a reverence for the past, which I don't think um, Jan or Honza uh, really can quite develop in himself effectively, and that separates them. So the reverence for the past, which uh, is is an element in a good life, which is denied to people here. That's at least my interpretation. Now the second thing is is religion. Religion, it seems to me, suffused the Polish Revolution more than it did the Czech or Hungarian revolutions or any of the others, um, much more uh, powerfully and much more naturally. Um, I, don't want, I wouldn't myself exaggerate the degree, as I think some have done, that, that, to which rock and roll uh, and, uh, was, a, was a major factor. It was a factor. But there's a story about that which I think it's worth remembering. Um, uh, Norman Horitz visited uh, Havel, and when he went to visit Havel in his flat, he discovered there was a large portrait of John Lennon. And he didn't have the highest opinion of Lennon, and so he, he raised a question. And Havel said, well, he's supporting our revolution. And Norman then replied, well, yes, he'll support you now you're oppressed, but he wouldn't support you if you were still successfully resisting oppression. And I think that's, that is an element, there's an element of truth about that in the Western left uh, and its relationship with, with, um, the, with, the, with the people living under communism. They were sympathetic uh, to them once they were oppressed, but they weren't going to help them to avoid, uh, to, to resist oppression effectively. And, um, that, and, and the, the Catholic Church in Poland was a much more profound um, form of resistance, both for the obvious reason, but also because the Catholic Church, particularly in the diocese where the, the man who was later Pope was, was Archbishop, gave cultural shelter to all forms of dissidence. Um, 
basically, you didn't have to be a Catholic to find the Catholic institutions and church protecting your freedom, liberty, and ability to discuss. And to that extent, I think, and that explains to me at least, partly, why the Polish uh, national experiment since then has been happier, not national experiment, I'm sorry, why the Polish national experience since then has been happier. Now, I've gone on too long. I'll just try to um, sum up. At the end of the novel, we find um, that we find um, Jan in in the United States, uh, as Roger has described. Um, he he's exchanged a world, as it seems to him, and I think he's querulous and cantankerous and difficult uh, beyond uh, beyond the um, what is necessary as a result of his experience. He's exchanged a world of silence <coughs> in the underground for one of triviality. Uh, and I, uh, now, is my feeling about that is there's obviously a lot of truth in that. Um, there's obviously triviality is one of the possibilities in a, free, in a free world. We are free to be trivial. And we've taken full advantage of that freedom <laughs> in, in recent years. But, but, but maybe... First of all, that will always be a temptation of freedom. And for some people, um, it's going to be, and for, I think for most people, to be honest, it's going to be a, 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 a stage of liberty from which they will uh, grow out. I mean, in life terms, you have a trivial period. You go to school, you have a trivial period, you get married and become serious. And I think that's true for societies <coughs> to a degree as well. At least I hope it's true. Um, but certainly at the end of the novel, um, uh, others have succeeded. Becca has succeeded. And I think that that is because she is more rooted. Uh, she's more rooted. Um, I should have said, by the way, that Jan's mother is a very significant figure in the novel, in my view. And she is a religious figure. She, he, Jan discovers how deeply religious she is as the novel goes on. And she's played a very considerable role, more than he realizes it. And I'll finally end on this parochial defense note. Um, I have to point out to Roger, despite what he said about Radio Free or Radio Liberty, that it does get Betka's, uh, sorry, uh, Jan's mother um, out of prison. <laughs> uh, and and the, the, the role that Radio Free Europe played in those years is not just a question of, of it defending human rights. It certainly did that. It also made available to cultures which had starved of their traditional culture, but to a considerable extent, it made their national culture available to them, which what the Ru Russian uh, service of Radio Liberty does today to a great extent. But having said that, um, the, the, the if you talk to the people who lived in those years, in places as far apart as Poland and Romania, you will find that listening to Radio Liberty was a key element of keeping their sanity and their hope for the future. And that hope turned out to be justified, even though, even a year before 1989, it still seemed like the illusion that Jan thought it was. God, thank you very much. <laughs> Well, I, I thank you both for those uh, very uh, perceptive comments. And I, I'm, I don't really have anything to say, except that um, 
when I think what all novelists say, which is don't confuse me <laughs> with my characters. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I fully uh, sympathize with John's uh, um, uh, reservations about Jan, but I think I if he had if he'd been the kind of cheerful person <laughs> that fully accepted uh, uh, all the changes and didn't look back with, with an element of grief uh, on the longing that he'd once experienced, then he wouldn't have been the kind of character who could convey just what that longing was, you know. Uh, and an ordinary, simple, forward-going person such as... Well, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say you're that, John, but you know, <laughs> such as you would have loved to have seen... Um, would have missed the point of those moments. But I, um, uh, anyway, I think um, that's probably enough from me. <laughs> Roger, a, a striking uh, moment in the novel that's not been described exactly, but uh, if you've read the novel and have listened to uh, the commentary, uh, you remember it, uh, is a uh, there is a professor, uh, and I don't claim that it's Professor Roger Scruton, but there is a visiting professor from the <laughs> West. Uh, and it is striking that he sees the uh, Czech dissidents very much through Western eyes, mm. and he wants to tell them that their problem is a problem of human rights, mm. and he has these abstract uh, academic and uh, left uh, liberal conception of what the struggle mm. is all about, which is completely uh, incomprehensible to them. They have no yeah. idea what he is talking about. Um, <clears throat> is that based on actual experience? What, what uh, or uh, Peter, for you when you were there, it, we can all acknowledge that uh, Radio Free Europe uh, did uh, a, a wondrous good things in keeping hope alive and, and uh, telling people that there actually was some truth uh, in the world uh, out there and some hope. Uh, but uh, but were people who were organizing human rights campaigns in the West uh, a mischievous uh, a bunch, or uh, did they have a uh, uh, were, were they ineffectual, or were they resented uh, within uh, within Prague or other spots in the East? Is this to me or to Peter? Well, I, I, I would say that they were, of course, useful. I wouldn't want to say they were useful idiots either. You know, I mean, they, in Lenin's sense, they were they were people who, who uh, had a, a slightly one-dimensional view of what the what the situation was, but uh, in their own terms worked relentlessly to improve it. And uh, of course, that's what that was understood by people like Václav Havel, uh, who. Um, Try to engage with the human rights movements in the West. But one of the most important things, in my view, and Peter might um, have something to add to this, uh, one of the most important things about Charter 77, which was a, a, you know, a declaration that there were uh, not just rights, but um, actually laws that had been passed through the signing of the Helsinki Accords, wasn't it, that... that in fact, the, check, the, the, the real emphasis on it was not um, some abstract idea of human rights independent of the law. They were saying that, look, in 1968, 
the Helsinki Accords were ratified here, so that they are part of the law. And what we are doing is, is really attempting to make the state live by its own law. And that mm. idea of the rule of law is terribly important in, in Havel's thinking and the thinking of quite a lot of people around him. Uh, and in particular, when he's established Vons, which is the, uh, means the, um, well, essentially a committee for, un uh, yeah, uh, yeah, for the of unjustly persecuted. Yes, but it means unjustly prosecuted as well, doesn't it? People who, um, he was actually advocating a, a proper legal procedures, due process mm -hmm. under the law. Mm -hmm. So it was very much more highly educated than an ordinary human yes. rights yeah. machine. Uh, and uh, and it enabled us, people like me, to say, look, uh, to many Czechs at the time, look, th this is what um, we have uh, not only lived through but produced the theory of uh, we we English conservatives over the over the last two centuries. So you're really with us, not with the with the normal normal left liberal way of seeing things. Havel never accepted that. <laughs> uh, but um, a lot of people did. Pavel Bratinka, uh, that um, mm -hmm. John mentioned, yes. and, uh, and Václav Bender, and people like that did accept that. So that was very interesting. Uh, and I think many people in Poland saw this too, you know. Uh, uh, and it was, um, I think, something that, it w when I described that character, that visiting American professor who addresses the seminar, I had in mind the the many uh, left liberals who did visit who found themselves uh, uh, suitably inoculated against any truth that that interfered with their prejudices. Can I just add to that? There's there is that that's a very interesting scene, Roger. Because in addition to the point you've just made, it the irony is that he then does, without necessarily intending to do so in quite the way he does. He then stimulates a real debate oh, yes. among yes. the. Uh, <laughs> That's what's so important about because of his uh, dogmatic attachment to the left liberal view yeah. of things. He opens their eyes to the fact that there is a completely different debate going on in the West yeah. than the one that they knew. Well, I think that uh, obviously there's there are many jokes about uh, people who. Uh, eventually defected uh, intellectuals uh, and ended up at uh, American universities and got shocked because uh, uh, those uh, uh, professors who invited them to teach at those universities had uh, a bust of Lenin in their, mm. uh, <laughs> in their uh, uh, offices. But that's a joke, but uh, it's really a little too trivial. But we can very much uh, uh, agree that uh, uh, it was uh, the idea of human rights that united the, the dissidents uh, throughout the entire spectrum, as I said, uh, from those who were actually dissidents uh, out of necessity because they lost that uh, uh, struggle within uh, the Communist Party in the 68, and they were just defeated uh, by uh, those uh, uh, mm, uh, those conservatives in the Communist Party with the help of the Russian tanks. Then you had people like Václav Havel who really did believe in human rights. Mm. Then you had the religious segment of the dissident movement. And of course the young people who wanted just play rock and roll and not being controlled by the state. And all these people 
united on the idea of human rights. Obviously, at the very moment when uh, the uh, Velvet Revolution started or um, happened, uh, they just uh, they, uh, they, uh, disagreed on just about anything. Because how could you, how could you have uh, Bratinka, who is uh, conservative, with uh, those uh, former communists uh, who even still in the early 60s were active members uh, of the Communist Party in one, in, in one group. It only could happen within the, uh, uh, under the lid of the totalitarian regime. Once the lid was uh, removed, uh, they inevitably uh, spread in different directions. So this is when the political uh, uh, spectrum uh, the political um, uh, parties were yeah. uh, were started in early 90s in our country. Yes. I have two points, if I may. Sure. First, uh, again, this uh, phenomenon of a relationship, it's very important because you have to appreciate that, as I said, the dissident life was really difficult and uh, very much uh, isolated from even the uh, gray zone. So mm. it wasn't easy for a young man uh, to find a, mm, you know, a girl, because uh, these families uh, simply didn't uh, uh, didn't uh, meet. These worlds were totally apart, and as these young men uh, and women didn't attend uh, um, uh, normal schools, they didn't even have uh, regular opportunities uh, to meet there. Uh, counterpart. So it was even from this point of view, uh, tough life for them. Second, uh, Sudetenland. It's a very important uh, phenomenon in your book because mm -hmm. it addresses another uh, historic trauma of our country when obviously the Germans were uh, uh, were pushed out and new uh, inhabitants of uh, uh, those regions. And these are significant parts of our country. So when you read about the um, uh, liquidation of this uh, uh, small town uh, because of uh, mining, it's real history in our country. It, as a matter of fact, in the region I represent, uh, I come from, uh, from this part of the country. And uh, thirdly, religion. I think that uh, you write that in the Czech lands, in Bohemia, religion didn't play such a significant role as it did play in Poland, but uh, you have to remember that we used to be Czechoslovakia, and in Slovakia, uh, religion uh, played a similar role, and there, uh, uh, these uh, segments, uh, I would say the liberal segments of the dissident, uh, dissident movement were much uh, smaller, while the religious segment which must, was much more, much more important. And if I can, let me accept that entirely, <coughs> but make the, the additional point that just as um, in the um, in Krakow, when John Paul was the um, bishop there, just as the Catholic Church provided a kind of canopy for dissent and debate and meeting of every kind between all groups, so um, his visit to Poland created across e the whole of Eastern and Central Europe the same kind of excitement and the same um, encouragement of contact between different people. In, when, when you were watching 
uh, the Pope on television or if you were at one of his sermons, you will suddenly realize the people alongside you were, were thems- by their presence there, by their interest and their reactions, they were rejecting the fictions of the regime. And you could therefore make a kind of contact with them that was not normally possible because the trust that is normally necessary for that kind of, uh, of contact didn't exist. The, the, the Pope, in effect, helped to create that trust among people who'd never met each other before. Thank you very much. Uh, let's move to general uh, discussion, comments, uh, questions. <clears throat> I will call on you. Uh, if you could wait until the microphone uh, uh, arrives and introduce yourself and make your comment. Yes, sir. Uh, <coughs> Roger, uh, uh, I would like to ask you. You could introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, my name is Samar Chatterjee, uh, Safe Foundation. Um, I would like to find out, you obviously from your accent it appears you're a British uh, citizen, so given that uh, you know the history of British colonialism too, and the kind of barbarism that was perpetrated in various countries, including the one I was born in, 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 in India, almost 100 years plus, uh, and uh, the communist oppression in th- these countries probably looks like a child's play compared to what the British did in India and other places, that the colonial, colonialism. So has it ever bothered you when you were writing, and I'm sure you're familiar with the history of England and the colonial past, which was pretty brutal and barbaric in our opinion. Um, Has it ever bothered you that you're writing about something, but your own people, may not not be all the British people, some of them, particularly those who controlled British Empire, were involved in such similar barbarism? Well, actually, that didn't bother me. Uh, because I was writing about a specific situation which I knew, um, uh, and uh, whatever you think about the British Empire in India, and you've made it very clear what do you think about it, it happened an awful long time before now, and, uh, and indeed by the time I was conscious, the British Empire no longer existed in India, so I couldn't have had the experience. Uh, so, you know, from the point of view of writing a novel, um, it was, wouldn't have helped me to have been bothered, I suspect. It may be, though, that I should be bothered, and as a rational being uh, with an open mind, I will try and make myself bothered uh, in honor to your, of, uh, uh, your remark. It's not going to be a military Well, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. Those yeah. Let me encourage you not to be bothered. <laughs> no, I, um, I don't think we need an argument about this, though, John. No, I, I would say simply, though, that the... I'm not going to go into the impact, uh, but the, uh, the, the argument you just advanced, just advanced is an argument about ever being concerned about anything because you can always say, well, you're not talking about this other question. Um, you, you know, why, how can you possibly discuss the poor housing situation when there is murder going on in, in Chicago or something like that? I mean... It's a kind of form of argument I find very irritating. Yes, yes, sir. This gentleman here, and then we'll move up to the front. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. 
Scruton and all the, the speakers. My name is Enrique Pallares, and I am a, I'm doing a PhD at Catholic University. Um, it seems to me that the debate is about something, uh, or, or that some of the points that you bring up are something uh, far, far more, more profound um, than than uh, what's merely in the in the political surface. And uh, it seems to me that you hit upon a point that is very important and that it is very uh, um, that is strictly relevant to the 20th century and to the 21st century, which is this uh, new phenomenon, uh, this new particular kind of alienation that uh, is experienced in um, totalitarian regimes, maybe for the first time, and that we, and a, and a kind of a different, but at the same time similar alienation that we might experience in a consumer society. Um, now, with that in mind, what, 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 do, what do we do and how do we relate to others? Uh, how do we kind of uh, recover our associations? How do we give our being a little bit more weight in the modern world uh, to be able to uh, uh, live in a, not in a state of alienation, but to be at home in the world? Well, uh, that's a very good question, and that is entirely the direction in which my own thinking and feeling while writing the book was going. I, I, I was writing it in full consciousness that it's very easy to caricature things, to look back and say, look, here are the good one people, here are the bad people, uh, here is this evil totalitarian regime, and here is the, the liberation that, that we're hoping for, uh, and that's it, and just tell the story of the liberation. And of course, uh, uh, as John says, that liberation was a wonderful thing, and it's good that totalitarian <coughs> regimes should be uh, should disappear. Um, but uh, you rightly say that that I was trying to to deal with something more more profound, which is that that in the human soul, which has, as it were, conjured the totalitarian system from from the uh, from wherever it it hides, as it were. Uh, and made it into a reality, uh, and w what actually, how the human soul lives in that reality, uh, and whether it, what, how does it look for its fulfillment, and whether perhaps there are ways of looking for your fulfill fulfillment in that difficult situation, which are lost when you uh, find yourself in an easier situation. And your, the, the alienation point is very important because if you look back at, say, at the literature of France, um, France went through a terrible time, uh, obviously, an uh, uh, the occupation, the Nazi occupation. But even before the Nazi occupation, the the um, the literature of France was absolutely riddled with the communist idea and the, uh, and the sympathy for the. The, for the Russian Revolution and so on. There was a kind of creeping totalitarianism in the thought of the of French intellectuals in the 30s, people like André Breton and, uh, and so on. Uh, and this was, was amplified by the war so that France, when liberated uh, in 1945, uh, seemed to be craving some kind of totalitarian government. Uh, and the right, writers like Sartre um, were, as it were, Try to conjure that thing, uh, and the, the whole effect of La Nose is to is to describe an individual who who cannot relate, um, but needs to be controlled, 
uh, and uh, I suspect that, therefore, that maybe that the Europe went through, especially occupied Europe, not my country, but occupied Europe, went through a spiritual crisis uh, as a result of the two world wars, uh, and which um, and looked for it in the wrong place, looked for it in the individual self, you know, the the the, uh, the, the soi, pour soi rather of, of Sartre. Uh, and um, really, uh, things only changed when Jean-Paul II came along and said, look for it not in yourself, but outside yourself, uh, and, um, uh, and in what you can give yourself to. Here. And then this, this lady right here, and then this gentleman to the right I'm his sister, <laughs> ah, <laughs> and I wanted to ask actually That explains him completely. <laughs> 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 I wanted to actually ask a question along the same lines. I'm Macarena Pajares, by the way. I work with um, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Um, I wanted to ask a very similar question, but I'll take it from a different perspective. In, in the novel, I was struck by the way in which language relates to um, our access to truth and human beings search for meaning. And that sounds like a very abstract thing, but you describe it very tangibly and very vividly. Because in, um, it, in fact, you have a character who studies the way in which the communist regime uh, twists language mm. and, and uh, only uh, allows certain words. And, um, and then I was struck by the way in which the underground church plays a part in using some of those same words like community or mm. love or sacrifice but retaining a much deeper meaning mm. and perhaps that's why the church was um, such an important aspect of of, of dissenting to, to the communist <coughs> regime but now um, at the end of the novel we do end in America mm. and um, the communist kitsch the there was a way of escaping it, in a way, perhaps through religion, mm. high culture. Um, but we have our own forms of kitsch mm. in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and um, how do we escape that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I could answer that question. <laughs> uh, um, it, 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 again, I have to say that you mustn't confuse me with my characters, but... Uh, um, the character who, who recognizes that, that the, uh, as it were, the, the, the assault on his spiritual possibilities, uh, um, of which he is the victim, comes about through language, uh, through the confiscation of natural ways of speaking, turning everything into a, a, into a sort of kind of um, code, uh, and the meaning of that code is power. That character also recognizes that kitsch is part of this. You may, uh, kitsch is a way of falsifying the world of art uh, uh, and, uh, and also the world of, uh, uh, of religion, too. You can replace all these real things with their, with their fake substitutes. Uh, and um, that's, uh, in a similar way, language is not kitschified, but, but made into a new speak, which... which permits only the, uh, the ideas that the regime uh, would allow. And uh, I think it's one of the most prophetic things that 
in George Orwell in 1984, this, this thought, because we saw it completely in, in um, communist Europe, uh, and, and especially in, in Czechoslovakia, because the language is prone to this anyway. It's a slightly artificial language. Peter probably might not agree with me about this, but um, <laughs> it, it, there are sort of kind of mechanical devices that uh, you, everything was, was, the whole world was described in terms of progress versus reaction, you know, going forward versus going backwards. There's a, um, what Francois Tom calls a pan-dynamism of the communist worldview, which is built into the language. Uh, and um, it's not as though American politics is free from that either, or the American language in day-to-day -day use. Uh, and um, it, I, I suspect, you see, this is one of the, th the things that drew people to religion for the reason that you, you said, that there, because of the liturgical inheritance uh, and, uh, and the Bible, you find utterances which are compelled from people by their truth, you know, by their truth to life. Uh, and those words are tested over centuries and still have, uh, they're saturated with a meaning that can't be removed from them. Uh, uh, and it's one of the interesting things that certainly the young people that I knew um, would uh, always refresh themselves with the Psalms. You know, the, 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 uh, the translation into Czech, of, obviously, of the Psalms, uh, which, which um, it restores language to, the, to its fundamental meaning in the human soul. And that was not just believers, but you know, the ordinary uh, agnostic, cynical Czech would still do this. Yes, this gentleman, yes. Milton Grunfeld, an architect. Um, it strikes me that the character of this book, it's not surprising he'd be disappointed with life, both behind the Iron Curtain and in the West, because they both, both actually follow the same gods, which are nationalism, progress, and human rights. And what, what, of course, is missing is a whole different model that predates the 19th century, which those ideas are all 19th century. But the, the more eternal things, which I think is what is being talked about here, um, are, are pre-19th century. And, um, you know, I think in some ways, it, but now you have to think about the political implications of that. Okay, we understand existentially we need something more than, than these three things, progress, human rights, and the nation, patriotism. And uh, it seems like the Austro-Hungarian Empire had <laughs> a lot to recommend it. You know, the empires pre-19th century, where people did live in their own way, in their own place, but were protected by an overarching republic or an empire, if you will, uh, might be a model that would hold more promise, rather than making a god out of your nation. Well, well, that raises so many questions, even more than the questions raised by the Indian gentleman earlier. Um, but now that he's gone, I can confess that I'm in favor of empires. And in particular of ours. <laughs> but ours is lost, uh, unfortunately. Oh, well... Um, I think that you might want to uh, uh, raise more questions, but uh, uh, one one point on your uh, this lady uh, on your 
comment on, uh, you know, this language. Uh, uh, Václav Havel even called it Fidepe mm. in one of these plays. Uh, totally artificial, meaningless uh, language that people simply put uh, through the one ear and out the other. The point was that, uh, of course, nobody believed that. But the point was that who should we have uh, believed in? I mean, those were people who believed in the Bible and the Psalms and, uh, you know, all these things, but not too many. Mm. And the others were simply left to their own intuition. Maybe perhaps uh, uh, for most of us, it was like uh, uh, just uh, uh, reversing uh, uh, the values. So if they say A, we would think B. But even that wasn't enough and it wasn't... Uh, uh, preparing us for the complexity of the world. And uh, this is uh, what may give you an explanation why uh, these nations uh, that freed themselves 25 years ago are still struggling uh, morally. Uh, how do they, mm, uh, you know, transform uh, uh, themselves to normal society? Because, uh, again, uh, for the most people, uh, there wasn't any opportunity for any open discussion <coughs> about things. The only thing you could do was to reverse what, the, what did they say. But th again, it wasn't enough. And those dissidents, they had at least uh, uh, underground seminars, uh, open discussions. They had some sort of mm. uh, uh, debate. So they came uh, much better prepared. And this is not a coincidence that many of those dissidents uh, really actually were prepared for uh, mm, uh, for political functions, for uh, uh, for being uh, leaders of the state, including Václav Havel, of course, uh, for the mo uh, in the first place, but uh, uh, people like Bratinka, Kropa, and others who, uh, who were so prepared, and we could ever only envy them uh, the death of their knowledge uh, while we simply... Uh, uh, went through our lives, uh, blocking uh, the official propaganda, but not not having the opportunity to discussing the the difficult stuff, the difficult stuff. So resorting to easy talk, easy life, resorting to privacy, to uh, our cottages, our halupas, uh, maybe sitting in uh, in the in the pubs drinking beers, and. Uh, uh, talking, uh, uh, talking, uh, mm, what the, mm, uh, the equivalent of bullshit? Sorry. I <laughs> <laughs> um, can, can I just come in? Yes. Uh, surely the, the the problem with your argument is simply that one shouldn't make a god out of anything. Uh, it isn't that these are bad things. It is that by making them the only thing, um, then 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 we we make a mistake. Yes. So I mean, communism. The problem with communism was it made a god out of community. But, of course, when you do that, what you produce is intense competitive individualism uh, and rivalry. And, um, and that was true of practically everything in the communist experiment. All of their aims turned into the opposite in practice. Uh, altruism turned, as I say, into competitive greed and individualism. I mean, people would sell themselves for a pair of silk stockings or a nice sweater. My name is Mark Venezia, and I'm a law student. Um, 
So I haven't read the book yet, and so what I have to do is extrapolate uh, from things that you said and from John O'Sullivan's version of it. And, and the character Jan, who, so even if I'm misinterpreting it, I'm going to ask you a sociology question. Mm. So I think of Jan as immersed in triviality and having some nostalgia for meaningful relationships, mm -hmm. conflicts, and so on of the past. Everything was meaningful then, and now things are trivial. Is there, just broadly, or maybe, maybe you have to go all the way east to Russia, a nostalgia for that past of taking art more seriously, mm. taking relationships more seriously, taking big intellectual debates of fundamental issues more seriously, and consequently, there is actually an appeal to it by, for example, Putin. Mm. So that's, it's a question about what are people actually thinking now in the East. Yeah, well, it's a good uh, question. There is, a, of course, a word in German, nostalgie, uh, for this nostalgie, uh, for the, um, this attitude of nostalgia towards the old East Germany. Um, and uh, many people feel it because life for many people was simpler then uh, uh, and uh, of course people find it very difficult to deal with all the many decisions that have to be made in a free market and, and so on and there's no doubt that Putin does depend a, to a great extent on that certainly among older people uh, it's younger people who would tend to to um, the opposition to Putin. Um, but mm, with all due respect, I think you missed the question because he asked uh, about uh, those who could be nostalgic about, uh, uh, you know, those big debates, big ideas. Mm. And again, I have to repeat that uh, uh, Jan is actually a member of the dissident group where, with uh, the help of uh, those who came from the outside uh, at uh, underground underground seminars within this limited group there was a debate there was an intellectual mm. uh, contest uh, uh, contest uh, among uh, uh, different uh, uh, views but outside of that group there was not there was nothing so those people who might be nostalgic like you said they might be nostalgic for not intellectual uh, challenging uh, environment they were just not nostalgic, or they are still nostalgic uh, uh, for uh, those uh, secure uh, conditions they used to have under the socialist regime. So this is a different kind of nostalgia. I'm actually talking about those kinds of things. Mm. Life was more meaningful. Yeah. Not mm. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, well... Mm. So, uh, again, uh, this was a very small group that had... Uh, uh, such an opportunity. I mean, I wouldn't even call it privilege or opportunity because uh, these were mm, people who, that was the, all that had left to them, this freedom to talk mm. in some basement somewhere. You know, I think also in the West, Cold War served for some people as a kind of very modest version of big ideas. In other words, I think when one went to Central and Eastern Europe in the, during the Cold War, you did sense, you felt as though you were going into a dangerous place. 
I don't mean that you were going to be mugged or anything, but there was a sense you were going from one world into another, and that there was a struggle in the world between good and evil. Uh, one can exaggerate that, of course, make it oversimple, but it, I think it was true, and one recognized the, the people in the, these other countries as being one's allies in that struggle. Um, and we were their very inadequate allies on the other side. So I think that there was um, perhaps an exaggerated sense among some Westerners that they were fighting a moral struggle when they were fighting the Cold War. But it was there. And, and some people definitely, I think, feel a nostalgia for that. Yes, sir. John Solid, an independent economist. Um, Mr. Scruton, I'm wondering what set of beliefs do you think would be necessary to make Jan uh, committed to, that's at the, the worst, become a limited government type, just <laughs> out of my own bias, or you know, belief in individual uh, freedom and private property, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and also, uh, John O'Sullivan, uh, my uh, mm. ambassador. Uh, what do we need? Well, we need just what you said, belief in those things. Um, uh, it, it's very... What, do we need the Psalms? <laughs> what do we need to get to those Psalms? Um, That's my question. Yes. Uh, how do you get to them from scratch is really the problem, isn't it? Uh, if uh, we, we get to them because they're the end point of a long process of development from monarchical government through the Enlightenment, uh, uh, the American Constitution and the, uh, and the British common law, English common law rather, uh, to the point where today we can, we can see that, uh, that without private property, the rule of law, equity and so on, human life is only half of what it can be. Uh, and we know that because we've gone through all the arguments. Uh, I, I did have the experience in, in that part of the world, in, in, especially in, in Poland, actually, in, in trying to explain to people in ten easy lessons just what these concepts are and why they were important and why they were more important than social welfare and all the other things that people that they were brought up on. Um, and um, you'll be pleased to know that I made no progress whatsoever. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, Um, th th this gentleman here has been waiting, and then two questions from the back. <coughs> Hello, I'm um, Michael Wagner. I'm a psychologist. Um, and I guess my question is probably going to be similar, I, I feel like, to a lot of the other questions. I feel like this theme of um, – I was hoping that John would be right, that, that this sort of obsession with the trivial in the U.S. is perhaps an adolescent phase. Um, but I guess my fear would be that it's, it's in, in fact, perhaps a type of despair. Um, uh, I guess we, we see that Pascal talks about the tranquilizing with the trivial as a kind of giving into despair, and Soren Kierkegaard will categorize it similarly as a type of despair, along with the despair of Sartre, right, which is different, kind of a despair because one cannot find the meaning within yourself as one cannot find meaning in the trivial. And I guess... Uh, Again, the question of this movement, of how we move from this position of, of unable to live life, life that doesn't have weight, doesn't have meaning, uh, it, it strikes me that it doesn't inevitably resolve culturally. I think uh, we see, I was thinking, my work as a psychologist 
it's clear that people, some people who become tranquilized by the trivial become stuck in the trivial and stuck in a life without meaning. And so I guess I was wondering, again, if there's, in that context, what would be sort of the next developmental step for a cultural tranquilized by the trivial to move beyond? Well, it's an, an another deep question um, <laughs> which, uh, to which I don't have an answer. Um, uh, I, I think, though, uh, y you're sort of talking, talking psychologically. Um, people, people's deepest feelings are associated with their way of attaching themselves either to other people or to their, their um, place or, or, or the culture or the religion that they've inherited. Uh, and those attachments are what, what really matter. Uh, and when you become trivial, it's because you're trying to shake them off. And an untrivial person will, will stay in that, uh, sorry, a trivial person will stay in that condition shaking off attachment, not, uh, not responding to the call of duty, etc. But a, a non-trivial person moves on to find a, a new attachment, the thing uh, to which he can, uh, in which he can, uh, as it were, invest <coughs> his uh, psychological <coughs> capital. Uh, uh, and um, th this process has been described in many different ways, by Bowlby and also by Hegel, of course, in his philosophy. And, and I think that it's a, it's a general truth that we all recognize once it's pointed out to us that from triviality you must move on. Um, but the rewards of staying trivial are for the moment so attractive that you don't. Uh, and then at a certain stage it's too late. You look in the mirror and you say, who is this facetious old man? You know? <laughs> Excuse me, can I just, um, throw, I just yes, want to throw sure. the question back at you a little. Um, there is at the moment in the United States a kind of explosion of altruism. If you look at the number of institutions that have been set up by wealthy people or people in retirement to help others, in every field uh, you are seeing foundations and, in, and being set up, family, sometimes family ones, sometimes I mean, the Gates one would be the massive one, but there are many, many small ones and modest ones. All of them doing, I think, probably good work, and I suspect practically everyone in the room thinks these are basically good things. Now, um, um, if we think they're good things, fine. But do we think that they will give meaning to the people who've done this? Does that enough give meaning to those lives? I think certainly a lot of people, particularly non-believers, would say yes. The life spent in helping others um, and m improving things in that way is probably a, well, a virtuous life. I mean, I think religious people would tend to say, well, these are good things, of course, but they're not quite enough. And they won't satisfy, and they won't solve the alienation problem, which we earlier <laughs> agreed apparently was the foundation of all these problems. So I, I think, therefore, that the, the triviality, um, when you solve, you might solve triviality um, in a way, but, but do you solve the deeper problem of, of which it is merely one expression? Or does an altruistic life then become a form of triviality? I don't believe it does, but I can imagine some people might argue it does. Mm. But what do you think? Mm -hmm. Yes, in the... Oh, oh, well, yeah. well, I guess what I would think would be that um, one for which it was, it was done for the sake, purely, of, of altruism, 
um, that is to give meaning to one's own life and in fact become selfish and remains uh, within the, the person itself and therefore isn't going to give it a meaning which um, prevents it from being alienated. So. Yes, in, in the back. Ma yes, ma'am. My name is Maya, I'm also a psychologist. I'm a former Dr. Scruton student. And um, whatever I think or you think about British history, I know that um, there are still good British people. And um, because <laughs> of Dr. Scruton's generosity, I was able to uh, uh, be here in the States and uh, graduate uh, with my degree in psychology. But I, my question is just a follow-up question again. I think we're really trying to understand um, that uh, what was lost in a communist regime and not talking about nostalgia in a sense yeah, that uh, communist empowered people were kind of grieving after, but kind of talking about those more internal things as well as things that I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn addressed in his uh, address to Harvard and many other places. But to me, I'm just really trying still to understand what is it in the human nature that um, uh, that makes suppressive regimes so much more conducive to putting things in perspective and understanding that um, life is our uh, the eternal life is not within us but outside of us and seeking God and um, long-lasting relationships. Well, I wish I could answer that question too. I mean, it, it is the case that uh, that um, the great spiritual testimonies that the modern world provides come largely from people in a state of oppression or, or deprivation of some kind. Um, you know, uh, there's there's very little that's come out of of German literature to match Bonhoeffer. You know, uh, and there is. Um, Likewise, in Russian literature, from Dostoevsky onwards, it's um, it's the person who's <laughs> who's suffering the uh, the the pressure from above who actually reveals the meaning of it. Uh, and I suspect we just have to accept that. Um, it doesn't. This isn't an argument for saying we ought to oppress people so that they're more meaningful. <laughs> but, it, but, it, it, but it is an argument for thinking that uh, indeed what is greatest, what is best in human beings, comes out in that way. And, after all, we're about it's, about, it's about to be Good Friday, the, the, the story of which is, is that, you know, um, that the, through suffering, the truth of our condition is not only revealed, but also redeemed. Uh, and I, I say that, I mean, I think you don't have to be a Christian to believe that, you know, uh, that is just a truth that's, uh, uh, that's obvious. Oh. I'm Al Regnery. I'm a publisher. Um, Roger, I came in late, and so I'm, I, I always am afraid to ask a question for fear that it might have been answered before I got here, but <laughs> let me try anyway. Um, your book takes place towards the end of the communist time in Czechoslovakia, and um, you spent a good deal of your life being a thorn in the side of the British and the American left um, liberalism. And I think when Whitaker Chambers... Um, in witness, he said that when he, s he aimed his sling at communism, I think he said um, he hit something much more sinister than that was American liberalism. And I just wondered if you could talk for a minute about 
um, the extent to which you thought as a novelist of um, talking about liberalism and socialism as opposed to communism, which was so obvious in the book. Well, yes, I, um, it's difficult to say now what, what Whitaker Chambers said, even though it's true, um, be, because uh, although communism has collapsed, the left liberal worldview has triumphed. You know, that's say the, 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 the view which sees human communities as directed towards the equalization of their members, uh, the constant provision from a central source of their needs, and the administering of social justice by an all-powerful elite of bureaucrats um, uh, uh, controlled from Harvard University. You know, th this, <laughs> this vision I is accepted as the truth, I in, at least in the universities, um, because it's the thing, of course, which gives them power. Uh, and uh, um, it doesn't follow that, that you shouldn't be saying that, that it's not the truth about the human condition. But, uh, you know, um, to be a thorn in the flesh of the communist regimes uh, had a very different feel from being a thorn in the flesh uh, to uh, the left liberal establishment in the universities for me. The communist regimes couldn't deprive you of a job for a start, uh, and um, the left liberal re regimes uh, that we have lived under uh, have a kind of uh, soft approach to things, which makes you look m more, much, much more easily look ridiculous. You know, wh what are you complaining about? Uh, is the general response to somebody like me? What I believe will be our last question in the back. Hi, uh, my name is Suli. I'm also a psychologist, also a former student of Dr. Scruton. Um, so I guess my question in your experience, um, Dr. Scruton, is you, we, I haven't read the book, so please um, forgive this question if you explain it in your book, but you write about the people who are oppressed by communism, right? What about the people who are the perpetrators. Um, in your experience, I guess, these are still human beings, right? Mm. There's also a, a sense of, it, it appears that there is a sense of alienation for them as well in terms of how they give their personhood to this greater cause, to this greater cause of um, whatever it is that they see is worth their life, worth their time. Just like um, in Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, he talks about this police officer who's the communist after oh. this priest. So I wonder if in your experience, you have um, encountered these people and what, what, is the, excuse me, what is the parallel process of the alienation for them as opposed to the people who are oppressed? Mm. Well, don't know quite what to say, except that um, uh, the, I think um, Gorokovsky talks uh, talked about this at a certain stage. You know that, that the Communist Party entered a stage very early on in the Soviet Union, in which it was in the hands of people who didn't believe its message, uh, uh, and. Uh, 
recognize that it was much easier to live by that message if you didn't believe it. <laughs> it, it became a, 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 a set of instructions for keeping order and for, uh, and for keeping people down. Uh, and um, you, you were as little persuaded by it as the people whom you were tormenting. Uh, and um, this again, George Orwell saw in 1984, you know, O'Brien or whatever his name is, the person who's imposing this uh, uh, on um, uh, Winston Smith, uh, is completely uh, uh, of the same view as Winston Smith. This is absolutely absurd. Um, and for the very reason that it's absolutely absurd, it's useful to us. Uh, and uh, I think there was a lot of that in, in Eastern Europe, especially among more intelligent communists. Uh, they, they were much more, much more persuasive exponents of communism than my colleagues in the University of London who, were, who had the naivety to believe it <laughs> uh, and, um, and therefore got stuck at the first th after the first three premises, you know. Where do we go from here? <coughs> I think the gentleman and I in the second row probably want the same kind of government, which is to say a small, modest, limited government. But I think we would also agree that in the event that that government were to arrive, we would not experience ecstasy. We, we would not throw our hands that we would not have the same kind of jubilation, say, that people felt collectively on the liberation of Paris, say. We would feel jolly good, well, that's nice, and now we'll get on with life. And in a way, a lot of the discussion has been about the inappropriateness of pursuing transcendental aims by political means. When you try to do that, it just doesn't work. Not only doesn't it work, it often turns out to be a boomerang. It turns around and hurts you deeply. And that's true for the people living under the rule, the rulers, and for the rulers themselves. They experience it in a different way because even they... Uh, um, get sick of it in the end and become ashamed and it alienates the, their families and so on. So the sensible thing to do is to try to get a reasonable sort of government and then get on with life. And then you have to, in a sense, avoid triviality by the simple process of trying to lead a good life. Now, I think it's easier to lead a good life if you have a belief in God who is sort of watching you and ticking you off every now and then. Um, and furthermore, that gives you a, it, it makes the whole experience, in a sense, uh, more deeply, more deep psychologically, and I would say in other ways. But having said that, if you don't believe in God, um, you just have to get on with having a better life and being more serious. And, and that will be perhaps not, in, not enough, but it will be better than the opposite. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for coming this evening, taking part in, in this discussion. We're now going to adjourn to the rear of the room, and uh, I really do encourage everybody to buy this book. It is a, it is a wonderful book. It is going to endure. Uh, in addition to being a profound inquiry, uh, uh, as we have seen from this uh, discussion, it's also uh, a terrific uh, thriller and a mystery uh, that keeps you hanging and turning the pages, and it's a really, it's a wonderful experience to uh, to read. Uh, so, uh, Roger uh, will be happy to uh, sign books uh, for you, and we can continue the discuss discussion uh, in the rear of the room. I'd like to uh, thank uh, Ambassador uh, Gandalovic uh, and uh, Mr. John O'Sullivan for joining us. Most of all, 
uh, I would like to uh, thank uh, and uh, congratulate uh, John O'Sullivan uh, for his creation of this wonderful work of art. We are adjourned. <laughs>